Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. How do tornadoes form on the sun? Why does Jupiter enhance our meteor showers? And how can pulsars be used as a deep space positioning system? This month's Naked Astronomy comes from the Royal Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting, held this year at the University of Manchester. We'll hear how Juno hopes to probe beneath the surface of Jupiter. We'll find out how a cloud of carbon gives us clues about star formation in the early universe. And we'll explore how astronomers have helped archaeologists to understand a standing stone over 4,000 years old. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Juno is NASA's mission to Jupiter, launched in August 2011, and only last month it successfully made fine adjustments to put it on course to reach the planet in July 2016. But in a time when astronomers are seeing further back than ever before and spotting exoplanets and even whole extrasolar planetary systems, why should we be putting Jupiter at centre stage? To find out, I spoke to Professor Fran Baganol from the University of Colorado. To understand how our solar system formed, we need to know how the biggest member formed. That's Jupiter. So uh, it has a lot of the mass of the planets. It's the biggest planet. It pushes things around. If we don't understand how Jupiter formed, we actually have a really hard time explaining how the solar system formed. And if we can't explain our solar system, then I don't think we have a lot of hope of explaining other solar systems. So, indeed, these things are all linked. Uh, We've been finding Jupiters and similar-sized planets around other stars. They're in very different places. So this is a big question. They tend to be closer to the star, and this is partly because that's what we can see right now. Uh, But we need to find out how solar systems form. Are they different in the way that they form? Is it just an issue of timing, uh, or is it just they're structurally radically different? So we need to understand ours first. And the biggest uh, problem we have right now is that our current grand idea of how solar systems form is up in the air. Questions have been raised because of the Galileo probe going into Jupiter's atmosphere and finding a lot less water than we would have expected. And that has raised questions about our whole idea of how the solar system formed. So what are the big outstanding questions about Jupiter itself? So we want to know the amount of water inside Jupiter. Most of Jupiter is actually hydrogen gas, the dominant element of the the universe. The third most abundant element of the universe is oxygen, which forms with hydrogen makes water. And so our idea of how the solar system formed is that beyond a certain distance, the snow line, lumps of ice formed, condensed, came together, bumped into each other, and formed big snowballs. And those huge snowballs, many times the mass of the Earth, in fact, was able to pull in hydrogen to make the big gas giants. But if we don't know the amount of water in the original nebula or in Jupiter, then we don't have much hope of this theory. So what is the structure inside Jupiter? If we were to slice it in half, what would we expect to see? Well, we know that as you go deeper down in the ocean, the pressures get greater. But inside Jupiter, we have the same thing. The pressures get deeper, deeper down you go. And so hydrogen gets compressed. And at some point, it goes from being this clear gas to a a liquid that is metallic. So it's more like mercury, the liquid metal mercury inside the deep interior. What we don't know is that that original core of uh, about 20 to 30, maybe as low as 15, but some number between 15 and 30, Earth masses of ice 
is that a core, a solid core at the centre, or has it been sort of mixed up with the hydrogen in the layers? So what we want to find out with Juno is, is there a strong concentration of mass at the centre, or is it a more gradual distribution with the uh, water mixed in with the hydrogen? And what's Juno actually going to do? How's it going to achieve that? Well, what we do is we use the spacecraft as a sort of test particle. It's like dropping a hammer or dropping a ball, like Galileo dropping balls from the Tower of Pisa. We're going to effectively drop Juno uh, around Jupiter and measure the, uh, how fast it moves. What we're actually going to measure are very small perturbations in its velocity around Jupiter by using the Doppler shift of the signal that it sends back to Earth. So we have a very carefully calibrated uh, radio signal dish that sends back signals. We detect those on the ground. And the small Doppler shift, the rising and lowering of frequency of that radio signal, uh, will give us a clue about small changes in speed of the spacecraft as it goes past Jupiter. I think we've done something similar around Earth to measure changes in Earth's gravitational field, and, and that's given us some very interesting information about density of different parts of the Earth and so on. Are we looking at more than just gravity, though? Are we trying to actually probe the the contents and see if that mixing is occurring in a more direct way without just looking at how it attracts Juno itself? It's very similar to the GRACE mission around the Earth uh, and the GRAIL mission to the Moon. It's much less sophisticated, unfortunately, because we only have one spacecraft, not two in each case. But it's the same principle. And indeed, that only gives us the gravity field. We will also measure the uh, magnetic field, and that's important, uh, because that gives us where the dynamo is produced and some sense of the structure of the magnetic dynamo deep inside. We will also measure the amount of water in the upper layers of the atmosphere using a very clever technique, uh, using a microwave sensor. So the idea there is the deep interior is hot, it's glowing in the microwave region. And what we then do is we measure the amount of those signals that are absorbed as they come out through the clouds, through the gases of the outer layers. And that will tell us the distribution and the amount of water that's in the outer layers of Jupiter. So we get some clue on composition, we get some clue on density, distribution of mass. We put that all together with our theories and some sense of how... Um, hydrogen behaves at these pressures and temperatures, the equation of state, uh, and that will hopefully help us work out what's going on. Jupiter also has a, a fine and varied collection of interesting moons, which presumably feed back into the planet itself. How are you going to tease apart the influences of the moons when you're looking at the gravitational data? So there are tides raised on Jupiter uh, by these moons, just as we have tides on Earth raised by our moon, uh, and we will look for those tides. But just as our tide comes and goes with half the spin period pretty much of Earth, uh, we're going to have the same thing happening uh, with the uh, orbital periods of the moons around Jupiter. We'll be able to look at those frequencies that will tell us what's caused by the moons and what's caused by the internal structure. So with about 30 orbits, I think over a period of 18 months, we'll be able to tease out those different effects. Seeing as you're sending these instruments out there anyway, can you not also have a look at the moons while you've got it there? Well, we've designed our uh, orbit very carefully uh, because we have to do two things. We have to get close to the planet and we have to avoid the deadly radiation belts. Uh, there's a sort of donut of very, very high-energy electrons that are trapped in the magnetic field around the equatorial belt of Jupiter. Uh, so we have to duck under those over the poles. And so this means that our orbit is mostly in the uh, above and below the equatorial plane, but the moons are in the equator. So we're in the wrong place. We're going to the wrong place to look at the moons. However... Because of the, uh, the fact that Jupiter is rather tubby, it's fatter around the equator than it is around the poles, uh, this tugs on the orbit and changes the orbit. And so eventually, halfway through towards the end, we will be crossing the orbits of uh, Callisto, Ganymede, Europa and Io. And so we may get a chance to have a, a quick glimpse of those as we go by. Can we use some of what we'll see on and in Jupiter to get a better idea of how things do happen on Earth. I know Jupiter has aurora just like we do. Is this going to be a good test for theories that we apply to Earth? 
Absolutely. I've always said that we can never have true confidence that we really understand how the basic plasma physics works in the auroral region and the space environment around the Earth until we've tested those theories elsewhere. Now, I would because I'm interested in going elsewhere, uh, but there's some truth. We are applying our theories developed from the many satellites that have orbited the Earth's uh, environment and use those theories and those models and predictions uh, for the very different environment around Jupiter. Some of them are similar. Some of them seem to be different. So we're having a good argument uh, about these issues in our field, uh, exactly how it all works and fits together. And we hope Juno will tell us the truth. Fran Bagenal from the University of Colorado. Even before Juno gets to Jupiter, we're developing a better understanding of how the giant planet affects the rest of the solar system. Ashwin Shakur at Amar Observatory in Northern Ireland looked at how Jupiter's enormous gravitational influence may alter the flight of Halley's Comet. And because the tail of the comet produces both the Orionid and the Eta Aquariid meteor showers, it can also alter meteor rates here on Earth. The problem we were looking at is why do we have different meteor rates in different years in the case of Orionids, or for that matter, any other meteors. Why don't we have uniform meteor rates in every year? Then we found out that uh, the periodic effects from Jupiter is the reason for different rates or enhanced meteor rates in some particular years. Most meteorite showers that we see down here on Earth are the result of Earth moving through an existing cloud of, of bits of dust and, and bits of rock and bits of leftover comet. So the question you're asking is, why isn't that the same every time we move through it? What has Jupiter got to do with it? Usually when a comet outgasses, that is, when the particles go out of the comet, it spreads uniformly along the whole orbit. But when you have some particular periodic gravitational effects from Jupiter, that would make those outgassed particles to cluster together rather than getting spread over the whole orbit. So that makes a, a sort of bunches of particles or sort of clusters. And when the Earth moves through such clusters, it encounters more number of meteors, which we call as meteor outbursts. What's the mechanism for causing it to bunch up? When Jupiter and the comet precisely coincides in some particular positions, there is a particular gravitational effect, or you could say a small kick from the Jupiter, which actually corrects or constrains that motion. So that's the way it works. When this occurs on the comet, then the particles which outgasses, they will also encounter the same effect. So when a comet itself is in resonance, so that's the scientific name we call for such periodic effects, you, you have more chances of the meteoroids becoming resonant. So such meteoroids cause meteor outbursts. So precisely knowing the history of the comet itself is very important in understanding the evolution of meteor stream. So they fall into resonance with each other just as a, a result of essentially the, the clockwork nature of our solar system. How have you actually been studying this? What have you been looking at? So we were trying to look at the particles which are similar to the orbit of the comet. So that's the whole point, because all these particles get outgassed from the comet, so all of them have similar orbits to the comet. So that's how we do theoretical simulations of meteor streams of any comet. So then we were trying to look at the future of these meteoroids or these dust particles ejected from the comet, and we were trying to track them as to how they spread along the whole orbit. Then we see that due to these effects from the Jupiter, they seem to bunch together rather than spreading over the whole orbit, which is essentially the reason why when the Earth goes through such a cluster, we see a spectacular meteor shower compared to the other years. So when did we last see this more spectacular meteor shower? There was a meteor outburst in 1993. Again, there was a meteor outburst from 2006 to 2010. So this particular outburst in 2006 sort of triggered many scientists to look into these look into the reason why these things can happen. And eventually learning from those works, we were trying to simulate the comet and the Orionid stream as well. So now we find that our results suggest that the 1993 outburst could be explained by a particular resonance mechanism with Jupiter. And now we could also extrapolate and say that in 2070, there will be a similar activity. And looking back into the historical records in 1916 as well as 1839, we see 
hints of such enhanced meteorites. So it's all these previous observations fits perfectly with the model. So we think all these activity could be explained by these effects from Jupiter. So what else can this tell us about the dynamic systems that exist in our solar system? Does this purely tell us about the meteor showers that we encounter on Earth, or can we learn more about it on a wider scale? The most important point of resonance is that it really helps the celestial bodies to have a particular evolution or particular dynamics so that uh, it gets constrained in a certain sense. So it makes, it makes many planetary orbits more stable, many meteoroid orbits more stable. So overall resonances play a huge role in the solar system. And presumably we could see comets falling into resonance with other planets, but because they're so small or because they're not very massive, the effect is just too small to detect. Yes. So the main point is the whole thing depends on how massive and how powerful the gravitational effects could be. So we could argue that there could be small resonance effects from Saturn, which is also quite massive, but not as massive as Jupiter. But as you said, these effects are very small or very negligible compared to the effects from Jupiter. So Jupiter's effect really overpowers all the other effects from the planet. So that's why we predominantly see the resonance from Jupiter. And can you now apply what you've learned to other comets and to other astronomical bodies to try and make more predictions about what else we'll see? Definitely. So we were trying to look for many other solar system bodies, a few other comets and a few other asteroids, and see whether they also fall into such resonance mechanisms. And the most interesting thing is out of about uh, 27 bodies, 14 bodies got trapped in such resonances in the past as well as future. So so it seems to be very interesting. There are so many solar system bodies which could really get trapped in these resonances on all, and all these effects could, could actually really work on other systems as well. So it's, it seems to be a very general phenomenon. Ashwin Shekhar from Amar Observatory. Juno's route to Jupiter was carefully planned out from the outset and it involves a series of manoeuvres including a gravitational assist from Earth that will happen in October 2013. But as we push further out into the universe we're going to need to rely on spacecraft that can find their own way. But how do you navigate in open space? Professor Werner Becker from the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Munich thinks we may have to rely on some of the more strange astronomical objects. Pulsars are uh, highly magnetized and fastly spinning neutron stars. And neutron stars are, in fact, the most compact objects which we can observe directly in the universe. Neutron stars are the uh, compact remnants of um, massive stars when they end their life. Uh, the sun, for example, um, will end in a white dwarf, and if you have stars maybe 30 times or higher in mass than the sun, these stars are expected to end their life uh, in a big supernova explosion which lefts over a neutron star, which is a compact object, a, a giant atomic nucleus having a size of about 10 kilometer in, uh, in radius, and the density which exceeds actually the density of nucle- nuclear material which we know from atomic cores. Pulsars, for us down here on Earth, are recognisable from a regular flash of radiation, be it radio or X-ray or whatever. How can we take advantage of the fact that we do have this regularity? First of all, there are quite a diversity of pulsars out there in the universe. Uh, they are called accretion-powered pulsars. They produce the light by material falling onto neutron stars, and which produces X-rays and optical light. They are magnetars, neutron stars which have really huge, extremely magnetic fields, and both of them um, exhibit bursting uh, light, light flashes. And you see their uh, rotation, this period, period you see just in this burst, so, which is still unregular because these sources are bursting just time by time, not, not really predictable when they do this. So there is just one group of pulsars which can be used for navigating a spaceship in the universe, and these are the so-called rotation-driven pulsars. So these pulsars have a periodicity which can be measured with an accuracy comparable with atomic clocks. And this is a fact, actually, which makes them preferable for using these sources for navigation. So how do we actually do that? We have these pulsars that we know that we can trust. How do you then use those as a means to navigate through deep space? 
Well, this goes um, through the timing of these sources. It's just a measurement and a comparison of pulse arrival times. It's similar to the GPS. And this, in an extent, is, is true and is not true because uh, in the GPS satellites, the signal which uh, receivers uh, are able to receive and to record um, has information in the signals itself. And this is not the case for the neutron stars, for, for the pulsars. For the pulsar signals, they are just uh, uh, emitting uh, light pulses. Uh, when the beam, they radiate across your instrument, your observing instrument, you see a flash, uh, a peak in the intensity in your instrument. And what you are going to do for navigation is just comparing this, the arrival time of these peaks. And this helps you because you know where the arrival of the peak should be. And then you can compare the phase or the time where, where the peak arrives, and you compare it with the time uh, it should arrive. And this is a difference. And this runtime difference, so to speak, uh, gives you, if you multiply it with the period of the pulsar, with the velocity of light, gives you the distance difference from where you assume that you are in the universe. And this helps you, and then you correct your position, you continue with the measurement, and you get closer in uh, measuring the pulse where it should be, where you expect it to arrive, and then you uh, have the information that you are at the position you assume you are. So does this rely on having, let's say we've put this onto a rocket in the future, we've put the, the technology on there. Does this rely on carrying a very large library of these pulsars and where we think they are? <laughs> well, it's not the software. It's not, it's not the ephemeris and not knowing um, the facts of the pulsars. This probably can be compressed in a, in a file of less than a megabyte. Up to recently, this technology would have been completely unfeasible because of the weight of the navigation device. So we're using X-rays, and the X-ray mirrors itself of previous X-ray satellites and observatory had a weight of few tons. So it would be completely invisible to have an instrument sensitive enough to record uh, the pulsar signals and light enough um, to use it as a navigation device. I mean, it doesn't make sense if you have a, a spacecraft which have a weight of one ton by itself to give it a navigation device which is four or five times as heavy. So what's changed in the technology now in order to enable us to use pulsars as a positioning system? Yes, this uh, pulsar-based um, navigation became possible with the development of light-weighted X-ray mirrors. And these light-weighted X-ray mirrors are developed anyway for the next generation of X-ray satellites, of X-ray observatories. The one which are in orbit now still have mirrors which are quite heavy. For example, one square meter of collecting power for XMM Newton, the ESA satellite observatory, which is in space now, has a weight of 2,300 kilograms. And the weight of a comparable new device, uh, if you use, for example, uh, micropore glass optics, is 25 kilograms. So it's a huge difference, but with the old mirror technology, this would be, have been completely unfeasible, really. So how do current missions know where they are in space? Usually those which are near to Earth, some of them use GPS, but the others uh, are all controlled from ground with uh, radio antennas and, and radio signals. This is called Delta Door, and Door stands for Doppler One-Way Ranging. So there is a radio signal sent to the satellite, and the satellite answers, sending a radio signal back to the antennas, from the runtime difference, you multiply this with the velocity of light, you get the distance to the satellite, and from the Doppler shiftings, its small frequency uh, variation in the signal, you get the velocity of this satellite, but just in the radial direction, not uh, the overall path in the sky. You get this only if you track these satellites for many days, and then you notice small differences in the uh, angle of your antenna you need to, to uh, follow the signal from the satellite. And this then overall gives you the uh, position uh, and the, uh, the track of the satellite in the sky. Two points here to mention is that this method depends on the distance from Earth. The accuracy depends on the distance from Earth. It's roughly four kilometers accuracy on the distance from the Earth to the Sun. But Voyager 1, for example, now is at 115 astronomical units, and you have quite large uncertainty at this distance already. The other point, uh, which is very important, and even the most important one, to my opinion, is that with the pulsar-based navigation device, 
you have uh, the ability to have autonomous uh, navigation system. It works independent from what is going on on Earth, and everywhere in the solar system and beyond with the same accuracy of few few kilometers, a few miles, actually. This is what really makes it great. Werner Becker from the Max Planck Institute in Munich. This is Naked Astronomy, and this month we're coming from the National Astronomy Meeting in Manchester. Still to come, we'll hear how CubeSats can help us to understand space weather, and we'll discover an enormous tornado on the surface of the Sun. But first, what happened in the early universe? Millimetre wave telescopes are beginning to shed some light on some of the big questions about early star and galaxy formation. To find out more, I spoke to Bram Venemans from the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg and before him, Richard McMahon from the University of Cambridge. Um, Well, one of the big questions in astronomy is when did the first stars and galaxies form? And one of the ways we do this is just by looking for objects which are further and further away because objects that are very far away, because of light travel time, we see those objects further back in the past. And last year, we found a new quasar with a redshift of 7.1, where the light left this quasar 750 million years after the Big Bang. What we would like to do is to measure simple things like the mass of the galaxy and what its chemical composition is. And in particular, what we're trying to do is, when the universe started at the Big Bang, the universe was mainly hydrogen and helium. And there were no chemical elements like iron, carbon, and oxygen. And so we want to try and look at these objects back in time and see, can we detect the chemical elements like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and iron in them? Because that will tell us a bit about when did the chemical elements that are in our bodies and on Earth first form. The heavier chemical elements, which um, astronomers confusingly call metallic, whereas chemists would quite clearly define them otherwise, are said to have formed inside stars. So presumably, in order for you to see these, there must have been at least one generation of stars existing before that in order to produce these heavier elements. 750 million years after the Big Bang doesn't seem like a very long time to have had that turnover of stars. Um, Yes and no. Stars like the Sun have ages of 5 billion um, years. However, stars which have a mass of two or three times more massive than the Sun burn their fuel faster because the gravitational potential of the stars means that the cores of these stars are hotter and the nuclear fusion reactions that take place in stars which are, say, 10 times the mass of the sun, those stars have lifetimes of only maybe 10 million years. And so these stars, I think the term is, they burn fast, die young. Bram Venement, you have been working on this project. Well, what are the challenges of actually getting information about things that are so very distant? The problem is because these objects are so distant, they're also very faint. So what we did is, if we look for quasars, which basically... very massive black hole where material is falling into and it's getting heated and shines very brightly. And because it's that bright, we can actually find it. The problem is that because it's so bright, it's very hard to see the galaxy surrounding the black hole. So the method we use to actually find it now works against us. So we have to find other ways to actually see what the galaxy looks like and get rid of the very bright light from the accreting black hole. When looking at stars, people often just literally place an opaque disk in the way and try and see around the star like that. I assume you can't do that for enormously distant quasars. No. So the, the, the thing what we've been doing is then we went to a different wavelength regime. So we went to millimeter wavelengths where the accreting black hole is, is not so bright and where the stars and the material surrounding the stars is actually much brighter. So we knew where to look, and then we used different telescopes to actually look for emission of the galaxy that, where the black hole sits in. And once you're doing that, can you just use standard 
spectroscopy in order to work out what the material must be? It's not spectroscopy, but what you get in the end is a spectrum, only the, the whole method is slightly different. You combine the radio waves and then you get the spectrum out of it. And when you did, when you were able to get this spectrum, what did you see? So we saw two things. We saw the glow of carbon, which is a sign that gas is cooling, and we saw the glow of dust. And both these things uh, point towards that there are stars being formed in the galaxy at a pretty high rate, like 100 times more than in our Milky Way. And furthermore, because we do see this glow of dust and carbon, it means there is a lot of carbon, that exactly what we wanted to find. It means that prior to when this light was emitted, there had to be a lot of stars being formed. So not only do you have evidence of a high rate of star formation 750 million years after the Big Bang, but you also have the evidence left behind that there must have been a very high rate of star formation before that. So it also helps to inform our models and our general understanding of, of the history of the universe. Yes, that's right. So basically uh, everything we do needs to be explained. The further we push back, some models might have to change something to actually allow for this to happen. Richard, what, what does this mean really for how we now move forward? Now that we've got this carbon signal that far back, we know that there must have been lots of star formation then and before it. What can we now do to try and answer some more of these questions? Well, there's a number of things that we can do. One simple thing we can do with this particular quasar is look for some other chemical elements like oxygen and nitrogen uh, because the ratios of those elements tell you something about the type of star and possibly indirectly we could estimate the average mass of star that went into making this carbon. The ma- if we can infer the mass of star that went into it, we can possibly put an age. This type of observation had been carried out at lower redshifts. It's very challenging, but there's a new telescope that is just coming on into operation in Chile where one of the observations we can do now is actually take a much more higher spatial resolution of this galaxy. And possibly we can find out whether this galaxy is made up of multiple components. Because one prediction of formation of galaxies is that they form from merging of smaller units. And so one expectation is that we would have, if we can look at this galaxy in higher spatial resolution, the carbon signal will break up into multiple clumps. But the other thing is that we have a research programme which over the next few years will hopefully find a number more of these objects. Because if you want to test a theory, you need more than one object. Because this object could be pathological in some way. Um, And so we really need to get a statistical sample of, say, 10 objects um, to see whether this object is average. So we'll be needing more of these galaxies before we can really start to understand star formation in the early universe. To help us to observe the universe at this sub-millimetre wavelength, researchers in the UK, the Netherlands and Canada have developed SCUBA 2, a state-of-the-art wide-field camera that offers an unprecedented view of the universe at these wavelengths. Professor James Dunlop works on SCUBA 2 at Edinburgh University. In our case, we're using the sub-millimetre look at distant galaxies forming stars. So the point of this is that young stars, uh, it just turns out, produce a lot of blue ultraviolet light. But they also tend to form in very dense, cold places in the universe surrounded by dust and gas. And what actually happens is very little of this ultraviolet light gets out. Most of it is eaten or absorbed by the dust. This is interstellar dust grains. So tiny grains of silicon and carbon, they absorb the UV light, uh, but energy is conserved, so eventually these grains re-emit this light, but they do it at far infrared wavelengths, what we would call heat. So most of the star formation is hidden and then is re-emitted in terms of far infrared. And then we're looking at galaxies way back in time, 10 billion years ago. So as the light comes from these galaxies, it gets further stretched to even longer wavelengths. And by then, the wavelength of light is about a millimetre or just less than a millimetre. So this is where this phrase sub-millimetre comes from. So what was new about the scuba camera itself? Edinburgh, well, the UK, but Edinburgh in particular, have a long history in building these cryogenic instruments, first for the infrared and then for the submillimetre. And they built a camera called SCUBA that was the world's first submillimetre camera and worked in the JCMT in the mid-1990s. 
this is the instrument that was responsible for discovering these distant starburst galaxies that are all dust and shrouded. Uh, but that camera had only, uh, I can't remember the exact number, about 40 or 37 or something detectors on it that all had to be hand-wired in and glued in and placed because nobody had basically built a, an imaging array in the submillimeter. So if you like, there was no analog- analogous uh, submillimeter technology to the CCD cameras that are in our digital cameras nowadays. And so Scuba, the Scuba 2 project set out to build a proper array of detectors like, like a camera, like a CCD-equivalent camera for the submillimeter. And it maybe bit off more than it could chew technologically in the sense that it decided to adopt this very new technology called uh, transition-edge sensor detectors, which are superconducting devices. And at the time the project started, not only had nobody ever made an array of these objects, the largest array that had ever been made was one pixel. So never mind building the cryogenic camera and putting it in Hawaii, people actually, a lot of the initial technological development went into developing the first ever arrays of these transition-edge sensors. And that's proved to be a, a big technological challenge and one of the reasons the instrument has taken kind of 10 years from conception to operating. But it works, uh, and the result is a camera that is 100 times faster uh, than Scuba was. And so, in a sense, by going for the long view and trying to make something genuinely revolutionary, we've had a bit of a long wait, but the result will be worth it, we now believe, now we see it working. And what sorts of things are we seeing? You said we see these very, very distant early galaxies with young stars that we just otherwise wouldn't be able to see. What can we learn about them? Okay, so today we, luckily for us, live in a relatively peaceful place in the universe, and the whole universe in general is fairly peaceful. So our Milky Way galaxy contains about 100 billion stars, so one with 11 zeros after it. And it's still forming stars. You would call it an active star-forming galaxy, but it's only forming stars at a relatively modest rate. So typically about three stars like our sun are formed every year in the galaxy. So a tiny trickle of star formation compared to what happened in the past. And that's typical of lots of galaxies in the present-day universe. But when you look back in time, there must have therefore been a time when many more stars formed. And if you look back over cosmic history, it turns out there was an era lasting about a billion years, from about 10 billion years ago till about 11 billion years ago, where things were really exciting. It was the kind of Jurassic Park time of star-forming galaxies when galaxies roamed the universe that just are not seen today, forming stars that have kind of a thousand suns per year in these objects. And these most violently star-forming objects, A, don't exist today. Just after their frenzy of action, they somehow either shut themselves down or the black holes in them shut them down, so they had a kind of final hurrah, some kind of mad party, and then ran out of drink, basically. So we need to look back to the epoch of of this mass star formation. And also these most violently star-forming objects do seem to have been particularly enshrouded in dust, so they're the ones that you're actually least likely to see with the Hubble Space Telescope and most likely to see with Scuba 2. So it complements rather well what you can do with normal optical astronomy because these are the objects you wouldn't find otherwise. So presumably there's a lot of theory that only now are we going to be able to test now that we can actually peer into these star-forming regions? Yeah, I mean, both, both detailed theories, so follow-up studies can try, with ALMA and, and other facilities like that can try and take even higher resolutions of these objects. So the, the goal of SCUBA 2 is really to act as a survey instrument to find these things and take kind of population statistics, you know, how many of them were there, how long did they last for. But these objects in particular, because they are the most extreme star-forming objects that ever existed, have proved a particular challenge for theoretical models of galaxy formation. In fact, kind of 10 years ago, when people first started using supercomputers to make at least semi-realistic models of how galaxies grew and evolved, it's the submillimeter galaxies that have proved you know, the most testing for these models to produce. The, the typical picture of galaxy formation in our universe kind of follows from small galaxies merging together into bigger units, such that naively you would think the biggest galaxies would just be being formed nowadays and there'd be quite a lot of action in the present-day universe. In fact, for reasons that we're still working to understand, what the submillimeter galaxies tells us is that there was much more rapid escalation to really giant star-forming galaxies during the first two to three billion years, and then there was some feedback process that stopped that with the result that the biggest galaxies in the universe nowadays are long since dead, and in fact they're the remnants of these very active galaxies 10 billion years ago. And this is really an observationally driven subject. This has really forced the galaxy formation theory 
people to inject new things into their models, like violent black hole feedback and things, just to try to reproduce these observations. Professor James Dunlop from Edinburgh University's Royal Observatory. This is a National Astronomy Meeting special from Naked Astronomy. Still to come, we'll hear how three tiny CubeSats can help to fill an important gap in our understanding of space weather. But now, not everyone at the National Astronomy Meeting is looking out into space. Researchers at Nottingham Trent University have gathered new evidence that suggests that a 4,000-year-old 2.2-metre-tall standing stone in the Peak District National Park was intentionally aligned to make use of the sun. Dr Dan Brown explained why Gardon's Edge is such an interesting area. It is a very special site. You don't find these singular standing stones frequently in the Peak District. We have to make sure, whatever we find, um, that it's not just a chance alignment. So one situation you could imagine, it could just be a standing stone, very slim, upright, a few hundred years old, that's just lent, and uh, through pure chance it's showing this alignment. And we have to sort of avoid that that could be misinterpreted in this way. So what does the site actually look like? I haven't had the good fortune to visit myself. So when I do, what will I see? Well, if you will go out with this glorious weather to the site, it's a a high-ridge gridstone, sort of a very coarse sandstone, and overlooking the Derwent Valley, fairly boggy in parts, in others quite rocky. So a typical peak district landscape for the high uh, end plateaus. And on that area, you have many different sites of interest for archaeology. You've got a Stone Age enclosure, which is a strikingly clear ring of stone, a rock art that's in place as well. So you can see the background archaeology of the site. And if you walk onto the site, you're already going through time. You can see Victorian drift mines, old millstone quarries, and a medieval hovel as well. So we use that quite a lot to get the visitors into the frame of mind. They're now taking a time travel. And when you end up at the highest level, you then encounter sort of the oldest remains on that site. So what was it that first made you think that this monolith, the the standing stone, wasn't just randomly aligned and was possibly indicating something and pointing at something in the sky? There was always the idea of how, let's have a look, how is it orientated? And we do actually do a lot of outreach work on this site. And as part of that, we analyse just, let's have a look how you would determine if this stone has any alignment, not expecting anything special. But it then became quite clear with our work experience students that the stone was very precisely aligned north-south. Then just doing a very simple photograph, a plumb line against the stone, you could estimate that that slant of the north-facing side was nearly 60 degrees. And if you then introduce some very basic astronomy, let's see where you are, how much tilted is the celestial equator, and what's the ecliptic tilt, you come up to 60 degrees. So that was initially the finding that said, well, hang on, there might be something interesting there. What do we think it was aimed at? It's not really aiming at something as such. So we're not talking about stellar alignments. We're not talking about more advanced astronomical alignments there. What we're talking about is something very simple that everyone experiences in their house during a year. You experience how the sun moves, not during a day, but during a year. And this is something that you can see because this stone is aligned north-south and to such an angle. So the north-facing side, the smoother side, is actually catching the light for the entire day only around midsummer. If you go into the winter half of the year, you don't find any light falling onto the stone. So actually, it's not pointing at a very weird star constellation or an odd star or something where aliens will visit us in the future. It just is plainly showing us where the sun is in the sky for a certain time in the year. Why would that have been important to people 4,000 years ago? Presumably, they could see what was happening with the sun anyway. Other indications would be used to tell you what time of year and what to expect in the coming months. So why is it important to have clearly put lots of effort into having a large lump of rock that indicates where the sun is? That's quite important to say that it is not really used for determining when that's happening. It's really the people knew what was going on, so they had already rituals set out or meetings that occurred at certain times of the year. And this is the point, and that's 
interesting. If you have these meetings, you want to make them special somehow. So you want to mark the occasion where you would meet or move towards or where somebody of importance would be standing. So you would uh, place a marker there. You wouldn't make it small. You would make it uh, quite substantial. And um, having the amount of effort put in there shows also that whoever's placed it there, the community, for example, worked together to place it there. And um, it's not just a general marker. You could put a sign up anywhere, but you want to write something on the sign, so you want to give it a meaning. For example, the importance of this meeting. In this case, it's conveying the importance by being only illuminated. Maybe it's a midday meeting, so this stone uh, front would only be illuminated during this midday meeting. Nobody would have come to the idea to try to find out when that midday meeting is by waiting till the sun shines on there, but it is still a striking emphasis on what's happening there. So it really does seem to be an, an object of celebration rather than a tool. I think that's exactly the thing. It's a tool to emphasise rather than a tool to observe. And I think that's quite important if we try to understand what ancient mankind did at that time. We didn't observe as such at that time. We didn't sit down and point long sticks into the sky and note it down how many marks something has moved or wrote long tables of lists of when a certain star rose. We did watch the stars. We, we understood what happened, and that's becoming ever so clear in many monuments. We knew that already, but this is a nice example that um, 2000 BC people had a very good knowledge about what was going on in the skies. And we don't have to extend it to all the group of the society, but a small group will have known what would have happened. The knowledge from 4,000 years ago is sadly lost. So how can we look further into this to confirm our ideas of what we think it is and to get a better idea of what would have happened around this stone? This is where we have to make sure what we've got as facts are facts. So we have to really make sure we're approaching from many different angles. Like our project is looking at the orientation of the stone, trying to support it through, are there packing stones there that would show that there was an intentional setup of the stone? Um, So we're trying to... uh, eliminate many other factors, but we're trying also to see how it fits into the context. What can really help to understand um, a bit more about the stone and possibly date it is the next step, setting up an exploratory dig on the side of the stone, where we could be having a look at the strata, the layering of the earth below that, seeing the exact structure of the packing stone, and really where at the moment we've inferred that they are packing stones, we can then see if they are there, which manner, and maybe find some uh, datable material that can really place this erection of the stone to a certain point. So it's trying to see things in context and making very sure that what you know is true, then inferring what is the most possible way of usage. Dr Dan Brown from Nottingham Trent University. An interest in the sun is still going strong even 4,000 years later, and it was while looking at data from the Solar Dynamics Observatory that researchers at Aberystwyth University spotted something unusual, an enormous solar tornado. These are often associated with solar storms, but this was the first time a tornado of this magnitude had been caught on camera. Doctors Ching Li and first Hugh Morgan explain more. It's a huge, what appears to be a tornado appearing above the limb of the sun, extending to about 120,000 kilometres height, and it could contain several hundred Earths. And what you see is hot and cold plasma being injected into this structure and swirling around in appearing just like a tornado. And how long did it last? Was it a very transient event, or was it there for days, weeks, hours? The, The whole structure is there for a couple of days, But the main uh, coherent tornado appearance is maybe four or five hours. An actual tornado of of solar plasma sounds like quite a a fantastic thing, and the size is enormous, but do we think it's the same physics behind it that's causing it to exist compared to a normal hot and cold air tornado here on Earth? No. (laughs) Um, The solar atmosphere is a magnetised plasma, so the physics is quite different from a tornado on Earth. We have waves, you have the magnetic structure confining the plasma. So it's maybe wrong to think of it as a wind on earth, as on Earth, but there's some similarities. Ching, how did you actually discover this? Well, we are, of course, we are always interested in another bigger, even bigger storm. That storm is called chronomass ejections. And uh, so those chronomass ejections, they can head into Earth. And, but uh, the mechanism that drives those uh, bigger uh, solar storms are unknown. 
we are thinking that these kind of smaller solar storm, solar tornadoes, although they are still quite big, play some role in triggering those bigger, even bigger storms. So weather on the sun is scientifically very interesting. Clearly it can impact us on Earth. It's not just an academic study. What observations are you using? Where, where do these observations come from? It comes from a satellite called Solar Dynamic Observatory. It has very high spatial and uh, time resolution, and we have so many, many images and uh, data, and we just have to mine those data, basically. So how do we now hope to try and understand this tornado, and, and what can it teach us? Well, when we saw this event in October, the minute I saw it, I was hooked, you know, and uh, we've spent the months since then trying to interpret this because it's a very complex dance of plasma and very hard to interpret and understand. But our hope is to build maybe a model where you see similarities to the true events, and this will help us to pin down exactly what's happening in the true tornado. We've seen on the surface of the sun before some very strange magnetic phenomenon. You get these plaited ropes of magnetic flux. Do we think that this is just another quirk of the sun's magnetic field? Uh, Yes, I think so. Uh, But uh, it's uh, quite dynamic and... uh... Uh, it's kind of this kind of structure is just like you when you pinch a, a rope. So if you pinch harder, the rope will tangle. And I think we also see this happening. Of course, the pinch uh, for ordinary rope well, is very slow, but uh, this kind of pinch is much faster, hundreds of thousands kilometers per hour. I'm struggling really to understand how magnetic fields can form this sort of shape. Do we have some good ideas how it might work? Well, it's something happened below uh, the surface, what we can see. And something happened there, and it's driving this kind of uh, very fast material going up. But there's something we cannot see, so we don't fully understand it. And Hugh? At the surface of the sun, the gas is the boss, and it dominates the magnetic field. And it will whip it round, tangle it, whichever way it wants. But sometimes that magnetic field then pokes out into the atmosphere. And so it does emerge from the surface of the sun as a tangled field like that. So what do we need to do now to better understand this tornado that you've seen, but also to keep an eye out for new ones or similar weather activity on the sun? Keep on looking at SDO data. Hopefully have other missions looking in such detail. And it's kind of important to develop probably computers to look at the data for this type of stuff automatically. We're lucky that we saw this event. Could have missed it. Hugh Morgan and before him, Xing Li from the University of Aberystwyth. And their lucky discovery will help us to understand solar storms, which can lead to coronal mass ejections and are a component of space weather, which is a hot topic in astronomy at the moment. One new mission, called Cinema, hopes to add to our understanding of space weather using three tiny CubeSats with innovative sensor technology. Professor Tim Horbury from Imperial College London was involved in developing one of Cinema's sensors, a tiny magnetometer called Magic. Cinema is really about trying to understand space weather, so the idea about how the sun affects the Earth. Cinema will go into um, low Earth orbit, so the kind of orbit that the International Space Station is at, only a few hundred kilometres up. And what it's trying to do is measure the radiation belts around the Earth, so that they're um, areas of space around the Earth that are full of very fast-moving particles, which can knock into spacecraft and damage their electronics and knock them out. And they can also uh, damage astronauts. You know, they can harm astronauts as well. So it's something that's actually technologically important. So that's really one of the key goals, is understanding how those radiation belts are formed, uh, how the particles are accelerated up to high energies, and how that affects the rest of the space environment. Cinema consists of three CubeSats, but so far they've been mainly used as a testbed to test out technology and test scientific ideas, but not often for real science. So what's changed? The CubeSat form factor, the whole idea was designed to be a very cheap way of getting into space. And largely that's because the actual shape of it is a standard shape. And that means that they can build something called a P-pod, which is the way you deploy them out into space. And that makes it actually very cheap to clamp them on rockets and actually um, piggyback on other things into space. So that was a, that's what made them cheap. And that's why they've been used a lot in universities as kind of engineering test beds for students to develop the, uh, the skills they need to go into space technology. Uh, What's changed, really, is that um, people have realised that actually the technology is getting good enough that you can build really capable instruments that are small enough to go on a CubeSat. 
So the CubeSat that we're involved in, the project is called Cinema. And that um, CubeSat is huge compared to most CubeSats. So it's a whole 30 centimeters long. So it's really pretty small. It weighs about three kilograms, so the same as three bags of sugar. Um, but in fact, within that very small space, we can fit two really world-class science instruments, as well as all the kind of gubbins that you need to actually run a spacecraft as well. So it's actually quite a grown-up spacecraft compared to a lot of CubeSats. It's going to do real science in space. But as a result, it's had to be quite sophisticated in the way that it runs, and that means that the University of California, Berkeley, who've actually designed the spacecraft, have had to work really hard, and it's taken them quite a long time to develop all the technology all over again, really, to build a spacecraft, but really small compared to what's normally done. You said that there are two instruments in there. What are they, and what particular aspects of this question are they going to ask? Right, so the instrument that's being built in Berkeley, in the University of California, is called STEIN, so S-T-E-I-N. That stands for Superthermals, Electrons, Ions, and Neutrals. So it's actually a very clever little instrument. It's, it's very small, and it can measure three different things essentially at the same time. It can measure very fast-moving protons, which are flying around in space and, for example, are coming down and hitting the top of the Earth's atmosphere to produce the aurora. It can also measure very fast-moving electrons. But a key thing that's really impressive about this instrument, it can also measure neutral particles that are flying around very quickly. And they're generated in a, a very interesting way from the radiation belts. When a fast-moving particle from the radiation belt hits a neutral atom far up above the Earth's atmosphere, it can basically swap an electron with it and end up going very quickly as a neutral. And what that means is after that point, it goes in a straight line and can then hit this detector straight on. So by looking, we're essentially using those energetic neutrals to build up a picture of what the radiation belts look like in these neutral atoms from underneath. So cinema will actually fly around close to the Earth and peer upwards and look at these particles raining down from over the top of us from the radiation belts. So that's the Stein instrument, which is looking at particles. The other instrument is actually built at Imperial College, and that's our involvement. And that's an instrument called a magnetometer, which measures the Earth's magnetic field. So we've been building magnetometers for years at Imperial College, and they're flying on spacecraft throughout the solar system in orbit around Saturn, in orbit around the Earth. We've been all over the place. But the instrument that's flying on cinema is much smaller than what we normally build, and it's actually using a new technology called magnetoresistivity. So if you've got a hard drive in your computer, the little read head that measures the, uh, what's going on on the, on the hard disk itself is actually a magnetoresistive sensor. So they're very, very small. They're solid state, which makes them very rugged. And so we can build a sensor that's actually a two-centimeter cube. It's incredibly small and very, very light. It only weighs a few grams. And so that will measure the Earth's magnetic field. And in fact, the magnetic field itself isn't constant. And that's actually the effect of the solar wind coming from the sun that's actually squishing the magnetic field. And by looking at those very small-scale variations, which actually are very localized as well, so they vary in time and they vary in space, we can actually learn quite a lot about how the solar wind is affecting the Earth's magnetosphere and actually how that's accelerating these particles in the radiation belt. Space weather has been quite a hot topic for a little while now, and there are quite a few large-scale missions that, that include things to look at space weather, SOHO, for example, looking at particles coming from the sun. So what gap does cinema fill? What are you getting from this CubeSat that you're not getting from the bigger missions? Right, yeah, I think that's a very good question. Cinema actually fills a really important gap in the chain of information from the sun all the way to the ground. So we can look at the sun and see things happening like a flare going off at the sun. We can measure things in interplanetary space and see like a big uh, coronal mass ejection of material coming from the sun that's going to hit the Earth. We can measure as that hits the Earth's magnetosphere and so the magnetic environment around the Earth. And then we can actually measure things down on the ground, and there are various diagnostic instruments we have on the ground to measure, say, how the Earth's magnetic field is affected. But actually, there's a crucial step in that chain we don't have, and that's really just above the uh, top of the atmosphere. So we need to make that extra connection to try and understand the full flow of information all the way from the sun down onto the Earth. And actually, those variations that finally come down onto the Earth's surface can actually be really important. So they can affect, for example, radio communication. Um, they can actually affect things like power lines and whatever. And we've had big power outages in the past because of the electric fields that are generated in the Earth's surface by the variations by space weather. And so actually cinema will produce that crucial extra step between the ground and space. And what do you hope to do with the data that you're collecting? How do you see it informing future research or helping us to understand what happens down here on Earth? I think cinema and the three spacecraft together are really going to help as part of this chain of information. So it's not just about those, those spacecraft by themselves and the data we get by itself. It's about putting that in with everything else. So the session that I'm talking in this afternoon is actually about a mission called SWARM, 
which is a three spacecraft mission which is flown by the European Space Agency. And that's really to measure the internal magnetic field of the Earth. But that field that you measure in space is greatly affected by these space weather effects. And so actually we see cinema, and, and in particular the magnetic field instrument, MAGIC, as providing extra information that we can actually help to inform the swarm data analysis and combining with all these other instruments to actually learn more about space weather and the way it affects life on Earth. Tim Horbury from Imperial College London. And that's it for this National Astronomy Meeting Special. Join us next time on Naked Astronomy when we catch up with your space science questions. So if there's anything you want to ask, email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can also follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.